welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome to the second part of my conversation with one of River Cottage's linchpins. He's Stephen Lamb, often fondly referred to as the ham and cheese man, because he's the author of the River Cottage handbooks on curing and smoking, as well as cheese and dairy. Now, if you've not heard the first part of this conversation, I suggest you go back one episode. But in this second part, we're turning back the clock to when Stephen's fascination for charcuterie and cured meats began. So you, this is the area you ended up specialising in. You mentioned Ray the Butcher earlier. I think you ended yeah. up working with Ray a lot and, yeah. and, and and ended up being drawn towards the whole kind of smoking, charcuterie, curing. Why was that the thing that really appealed to you? Because um, Ray was a character and uh, he was interesting. Ray was a, he was a policeman in the Met in the 60s and the stories he used to tell me, I'm still not quite sure what side of the law he was on, but... Um, he uh, left that industry and became a butcher. And for some people, they're making a link. But, you know, he just did that. And uh, he ran a butcher shop in Dorset. And he was part of the original crew, part of one of the characters on the River Cottage uh, series. And I found him totally engaging. He was a bit scary. He used to scare the chefs half to death. Um, the Me Too movement had yet uh, been applied uh, to to Ray. And so, you know, he was of a certain type, but he had a sparkle in his eye and you had to earn his respect. And um, I said to him, I really love this, Ray. This is kind of the beginning of cookery for me, butchery, going right back to the source and uh, learning how to do things. And he took me under his wing. And uh, he was challenging and uh, I remember once in front of a lot of people at an event, um, I used to help him and I used to kind of preempt what he would do next. And at one point I preempted and I think I'm, I must have annoyed him uh, because I was probably getting in the way. And it was more about me knowing what he was going to do rather than him showing people. And in front of a room full of people, paying customers, he turned to me and he went, now look, I've taught you everything you know. But not everything I know. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. Excellent. Right? Here I am in front of a room full of people. I'm being told off uh, and I'm just trying to help. And I found myself saying, that's true. But I want to know those things that you know and I don't. I'm committed to learning. And he thought that that was a good response. And so he went, right, okay then. And then from there on in, he was probably wasn't aware of it, but he was a brilliant teacher. And uh, we got along famously, you know, at work because we shared a certain sensibility and, you know, I like that kind of teacher-student scenario. And uh, he's no longer involved at, at River Cottage. He, he retired and, you know, I felt able to kind of 
carry on. And, and with the basis and the foundation of what he taught me, I just became really engrossed in this in this subject. It fascinates me culturally that throughout time, you know, there's always been an element of smoking and curing going on. And it, it doesn't discriminate. You can be from uh, an elevated civilization or an indigenous community in any pocket of the world throughout time. You would have had a product that you cured, smoked or preserved. And these communities did not talk to one another. The internet had not yet been invented. It just happened. And, you know, the Inuits make a version of salami uh, in the Arctic Circle and have done culturally for years. The Egyptians were making cured goods. The Aboriginals were making cured goods in China, sorry, in Japan, where, you know, I was talking about um, elevated civilizations. There are peaks. You know, the Mayans were elevated at one point and they're no longer here. And uh, the, the Romans were. But in Japan, one of the oldest known cured and smoked products is called katsuboshi. Uh, the commercial, more recent uh, product is called Benito Flakes. But it's uh, katsuboshi is a piece of skipjack tuna that has been salted, smoked, and then hung. And it's one of the oldest known products and it's fascinating for me because we know it's one of the oldest known products because there was a piece of apparatus created in order to deal with this old stinky hardened piece of once what was skipjack juna but now resembles a branch from a tree and it's like a, a kind of truffle shaver and we don't know who and we don't know why and I love that kind of element of it not being locked down. I love the science. I love the sorcery of smoking and curing. But at some point, somebody in the Japanese community went, you know that fresh sashimi skipjack tuna that we normally have? Let's not have that today, lads. Let's have this. I've had this idea. And they create this thing. And they all must have thought that this person was the village idiot. Because after about a year, they took shavings of this old piece of gnarly skipjack tuna and they used it as a condiment on a freshly created miso broth something that they make daily and a whole new flavor opened up which is amazing because who'd have known right first of all who who decided this was okay right how many people died in the process of this practice this person or these people we don't know who has kind of understood the denaturing qualities of salt, the bacterial qualities of smoke and time and maturing and airflow and humidity and molds, or as food marketeers like to call them, blooms. And then the bit that really fascinates me is they've projected, they've time traveled 12 months into the future and they've understood that this product that they've never made in 12 months time will taste in such a way that when they pair it with something that they make on a daily basis, it will create this third flavor. I mean, what the hell's going on there? Quite uncanny and I love that. Normally I like things to be locked down, but I love the mystery. And that fuels my kind of appetite for learning more. And, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, we think about Italy, Spain, France, Eastern Europe, a, a, 
a place that geographically my nan would still call the continent. Never left Manchester in her life, but she's an expert on the continent. That's where we look to for a kind of present day um, products like prosciutto, copper, salami. But you know what, Mark? These products have been around since time began. And I want to to unlock that. It's cultural, it's geographic, it's proper terroir, born out of necessity, old, ancient, almost innate knowledge. And we're just tapping into that. Today, if I make my own bacon, or if anybody else makes their own bacon, they're tapping into that spirit. And, you know, that's my place. That's what I like. And, you know, I don't have to worry now about putting on a chef's jacket uh, and thinking, I can't carry this off because I'm not a chef. When I used to do that, I used to look around me and people used to look like chefs. And when I put on a chef's jacket, I looked like a dentist. <laughs> I just couldn't carry it off. So I don't have to do that anymore because no. I'm tapping into something much bigger and that's where I'm happy. Yeah, amazing. That's such a beautiful description. I, I think for me, the, you know, one of the most exciting things of that, aren't we so lucky as a species that we have the ability to appreciate flavour that's that nuanced, you know, that we're not just eating to live, but that we've got the time and the foresight. And like you said, one of the few things they say about humans is that we have that ability to think about the future, you know, yeah. rather than the now. Yeah. But yeah, it's incredible that we have such a broad palette, isn't it? It feels like we don't need it. You know, we don't need it to be alive. You could just, you know, put food in your body for energy. But I feel that we're so lucky that yeah. we can appreciate all of these different flavours and textures. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're not kind of just surviving on carry on are we you know in roadkill it's not something like that but you know what i did think about this and i thought i had the same view about aren't we lucky but ultimately as a human being we we kind of think we're top of the tree and evolution and yet when it comes to the realms of the senses like being able to take in flavor we're not that acute We're, we're we're still slightly you know dullards A shark can smell a drop of blood in the ocean from some distance away. You can't do that. I can't do that. Taste and flavour is where we have slightly more advanced, but we're limited. We can only categorise flavours by sweet, sour, bitter, savoury and salt. Right? Back to the salt. Salt accounts for one-fifth of your overall engagement in flavour. You kind of know when you've got too much salt. Nobody taught you that. You know if there isn't enough and you adjust that, nobody taught you that. It's almost innate, isn't it? Learning about flavour is innate, but from those five broad categories, then you can explode into lots of different ingredients and lots of different combination of those ingredients. I like to think about the fact that people say salt is the devil's ingredient too much and it's bad for your health. Of course it is. And I always come back with, you know, without salt, you die. And it's not a kind of very appetising subject <laughs> for this podcast, but it's true. It's balance, isn't it? 100%. Yeah. yeah. I was chatting to Rosalind from the uh, London Cookery School, who's been, I think she's trained 40,000 people over the last, uh, you know, 30 years or something like that in cooking. But, you know, her, she's the same. Salt's her favourite ingredient. You know, she's yeah. like, she she extols the virtues. It was like, you know, she, she talked about almost like, you know, wizardry and magic, you know, the things that you can do with salt are, yeah. uh, are of another realm, basically. She was it so is. excited about it. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, we are saline creatures. You know, water and salt, it's what we're... You know, wobbling about inside us 
us. Totally. We need some because it's, it's getting near lunchtime. Yeah. Um, why is it, and, and this has changed in the last few years, that we've become much more interested in charcuterie? So it used to be you only had, you know, kind of cured meats when you were on holiday and you went abroad, and now we've sort of bought it home. And now, as a restaurateur, I was wanted to buy local, but in the early days, certainly if I wanted to put a nice kind of, you know, sharing charcuterie board on, I did always end up going over to Spain and to France. Yeah. Now it's been really exciting in the last few years. That's so much easier to resolve. You mentioned the fact that this is, you know, multi-generation. Did we used to do it and lose it? Was it was it done in other countries because of the different kind of, you know, weather and climate? And the, I don't know, why why is it now a thing in Britain to produce it and it didn't used to be? Well, I, I think we've always had fantastic produce. Exactly, some of the best, yeah. Yeah, it's only now that we're kind of applying the craft of curing and smoking charcuterie to those amazing products. I'm sure we did. I'm sure we did, but we kind of culturally became disassociated from the craft. Something happened whereby we thought, actually, you know, they do it better over there. And um, Spain, Italy, and France, Eastern Europe, those are the kind of places where we would go and look for those products because they traditionally carry on doing it. They haven't lost the ability. They've championed it. They've turned it into products which celebrate who they are culturally. I've got a mate who works in the Spanish government and he works in the equivalent of the Department of Culture, although it's not called that. And under their remit, they go and randomly check the DNA in Iberico hams to be certain that it can be traced back to a small herd of Patanegra blackfoot pigs. And if it does not, they come down on that producer like a ton of bricks because nobody's going to mess around with their ham because it's who they are. It's not just ham on a charcuterie plate. It's culturally who they are. It celebrates topography, terroir, craft, climate, history. It's, it's a real kind of, it's, a, it's, it's something to be celebrated. Now, there's nobody doing, we don't even have a national dish, but there's nobody really checking the DNA of fish and chips. You know, it's kind of low on the scale. The other thing is that, again, I've got this perhaps over-romantic notion of the continent, but people celebrate regionality. You're from somewhere else in my country, and I'm from somewhere else in the same country. We make brilliant things in our place. So do you. We're not going to be on your back about you banging on about how brilliant your stuff is because we think it is something that's really important for the general whole country. We make brilliant stuff, you make brilliant stuff. We're poor at that in Britain. You know, we're poor at celebrating what we're good at. Um, where we do it best, I think, is in the world of cheese. I was going to say, yeah, I was yeah. chatting to Blue Vinny not long ago about this is that subject. So you're right. Yeah, yeah. cheese, we finally, it's a new thing though, relatively, isn't it? I know. We're getting better at... What do you make? Oh, we make cheddar. Mm. Oh, we make Cheshire. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. And you make Yarg in Cornwall and Somerset Brie. And you start to think, actually, there's no shame in going, hey, we make great stuff because we recognise you make great stuff too. And that fixes it, I think, more in the place, it grounds it more. And I think charcuterie didn't have that. Yes, it's to do with high welfare. Yes, of course, ultimately it's to do with pasture, but with cheese, that's all it can be. There are very few ingredients, milk, salt, and what happens before the milk is turned into milk is deeply, deeply important. And that's why I think 
Jesus managed to do it because it's fixed in a certain place. But, you know, charcuterie-wise, I guess we took our eye off the ball. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? The flip side of that um, tradition and history, I suppose, is, and this has come up with, with a few uh, podcasts, William Curley uh, about um, chocolate, Emily about cheese, um, certainly champagne, English sparkling wine. We, yeah. we, What we do have, because we're not constrained by history, is we seem to be getting a reputation for innovation. So although we're late to the party, we're now learning new techniques. Sparkling wine is probably the easiest example to say, you know, they're so buried in the history of how to produce champagne in champagne that now, from a taste perspective, in blind taste, you know, we're, we're taking them on and we're winning some of the best taste awards because we can innovate. So I suppose... There's a fine line between, and, and William Curley was kind of saying in chocolate world, you know, if he, if he was in a little Belgian village making certain chocolates and he came up with some of the weird and wacky flavours that he now does, he'd probably be thrown off of the continent for being so revolutionary. <laughs> Whereas in London, it's kind of welcomed because we've got such a broad range of cultures and history and stuff. So I guess, is there an argument to say that, because it, it, it feels bad if that means that people can then cheat and actually the provenance of the food and, the, and what, you know, they stand by on the continent clearly means you can guarantee that product it almost feels like okay we're, we're starting from scratch in some way but we do need to retrofit some of the same policies in the same way i can't remember what the accreditation that blue vinny got but they were given some sort of locality of cheese so they are the only people who can make you know dorset blue vinny yeah i think it's like a dpi it's a, it's yeah. a designated product of a certain origin that rings a bell yes yeah, yeah. fixes it same yeah. as uh, you know a lot of uh good ingredients can't it doesn't mean to say that you it means ultimately that you can't call it champagne but you know i think it's there as a benchmark i don't think it's there as a kind of selfish thing that you can't do it as as good as us and you know we've always i think as a nation we've been great innovators i think that's one of the best things about being from where we are because we're here from accident really aren't we uh, but you know fashion music science industry there's a massive uh, history of being innovators and they still have their crappy side of the food production on the continent too, you know. It's just that they kind of... Yeah, they really do. Yeah, yeah. have yeah. <laughs> had a they, lot of bad meals in France. Totally, yeah. right? Yeah. But they do kind of, you know, it's not necessarily to the fore. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's an energy, there's a movement, whether it's a revolution, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's a resurgence. Uh, tapping into other people's knowledge, not necessarily just passing it off as your own, but adapting that and going, actually, you know, we can compete, we can make brilliant produce. It would be a poor drinking experience to go to a restaurant and say that all the red wines were from England. You know? Yes. It's not about internalising too much it's a part of definitely 100% my, my laughing because my it. restaurant manager is French and I remember like you know as far as he's concerned absolutely you should go into a restaurant all the wine should be from France 100% but we have educated him over the years that yeah. other other wines and countries in the world are available just quickly while we're on the, um, the yeah. difference between the two something that comes up regularly in the UK is uh, and chatting to farmers and, and I don't basically I don't know if it's an urban myth or not but we talk a lot about the fact that we've got some of the best animal welfare standards in the world 
in the UK. I mentioned to you earlier when we came and found this beautiful uh, log cabin that I was in the Alps not long ago in, in, in Chamonix and, and you go out there and actually you see these lovely animals wandering around in fields in the grass and, and, and creating beautiful produce. We talked then about Iberia pigs. Is it true? Do we have the best standards in the UK? Do you know? Um, or actually is this a bit of a myth we've created and Europe is equally as good at it or is it nuanced? I think both. I think, you know, there, there are those kind of amazing uh, elements of brilliant pasture, high welfare uh, in, in Europe. I think we also have some of the highest welfare standards here, which are not just universally applied, but you it's, it's clear, it's not hidden. You know, I think there's a, a, a huge amount of people doing amazing things about wanting to do the right thing. Of course, it's not in the majority, but it's very much accessible. And we touched on it earlier about having those kind of lines of accreditation, you know, free range, you know, red tractor, organic. And I suppose you and I are from a privileged position where we get to meet the producer. And as a consumer, you don't always get to meet the consumer, have a look and, you know, see the whites of their eyes and go, oh, so you're doing this and doing that. And, uh, you know, working out whether or not it, it does make the grade. Uh, and so we're not necessarily governed by that. We, we, we can judge on, on what we see and what we experience. But, you know, organic movement, slow food movement, independent artisan producers doing amazing things uh, f from the field all the way to the fork, supported by a massive amount of brilliant foodie professionals who want to do the right thing. I, I wouldn't say that we do it better. I wouldn't say that we do it more. I think it's perhaps more prominent because as a small set of countries, a small island, it, it looks more concentrated as, and, and I would just say that we have both sides of that but I think more people are exposed to the good side mm. okay interesting you um, just to finish off on those topics of, of dairy and charcuterie you wrote a book on each under mm. the river cottage sort of guy so people can deep dive into those hugely if they want to with your books but is, is there a piece of charcuterie and if it's bacon or not but is there something that people at home should be doing if they want to start with a simple cheese or start with a simple bit of curing uh where's where's the easiest place where's the kind of like idiots this can't go too wrong place to start yeah yeah it, it, it's interesting because it's all really accessible and um you know now i'm kind of often introduced as steve lamb the ham and cheese guy and i think you know that's uh, that'll do that's okay uh but you know um really easy to make simple bacon really easy to make great hams, really easy to make fresh cheeses, fresh curds, ricotta, mozzarella, halloumi. Um, it's just a matter of understanding that you're not, particularly with curing and smoking, taking something which is slightly shonky and turning it into something barely palatable. Both of these things, making cheese, you have to start with really good milk, really good meat and with a simple layer of craft and understanding and a few simple rules you will make something amazing you will make an elevated version of what that original product was and so you know smoked trout smoked cheese soft cheeses all of these things are really really 
really simple. And I have a slight aversion to kit and caboodle. I find it a little bit suffocating, a little bit too many shiny things in the kitchen. And I start to go, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. And you can do all of these things with uh, basic items that you've already got in your domestic fridge. So you have to take the fire alarm out of your house if you're smoking a trout? or uh... <laughs> Well, with the extraction unit on, you're okay. okay. You're right. But, you know, the other thing about this is I like to see smoking as a kind of outdoor pursuit. Okay. If you've got, gotcha. <laughs> right, if you've got uh, a normal kettle barbecue, you've got the beginning of a hot and cold smoker. The difference between hot and cold smoking, other than temperature, is that hot smoking is cooking and flavouring with smoke. Cold smoking is flavouring with smoke, but preserving and drying. Right, okay. Um, And I know there was one particular cheese, it sounded super simple, I don't know, I was reading last night, but it was literally, I think was it, you get some some good quality yoghurt, you put something in it. Labner. So go on, can you just explain what this Because even I read it and went, oh man, I could do that. I, I know, could pull that off, I know. No it's so easy, right? So Labna, it's a drained yoghurt cheese. So you get some really decent uh, uh, full fat yoghurt and um, a cheesecloth or a piece of muslin. And you get uh, about 500 millilitres of yoghurt because that's the tub that it comes in. I put a sprinkle of salt in there. You needn't, you can just let it drain. But I stir in about a teaspoon of salt, agitates the yogurt, and then you put that into muslin, tie it at the top, hang it over your fridge or over a bowl, and the whey starts to drain out of the yogurt, which ultimately, over a few hours or overnight, leaves a curd. Not too dissimilar from the texture of uh, borsan, or perhaps to some of the listeners, Philadelphia, if you want. It's got that kind of consistency. And it's delicious on toast. It's delicious on anything. But you can pimp it up as well. You can put herbs in it. You can put black pepper in it, garlic. See, in my house now, um, everybody knows what they're going to get for Christmas. They're going to get a little kilner jar of labna. They're going to get a little bit of bacon, wrapped in wax paper, potentially they might get a homemade salami and they're going to get another signed copy of my book, whether they like it or not. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, well, yeah. at least they know they know what's coming. Yeah. Uh, that's good. And it's great to hear you can, yeah, you can you can make the bacon as well. Do you have, uh, you mentioned a YouTube channel earlier, but do you have videos where you show people how to do this as well or is the best yeah. place by the book? Yeah, no, no, the book is there and um, it, it's a great kind of supporting tool for anybody who wants to do it, but you can access uh, you know the videos on on, on YouTube um, uh, via you know River Cottage website also, but you know it's old knowledge really. Uh, it's nothing new. I'm I'm kind of still learning. I just I just like the notion of doing something, which although you will always make something safe, uh, it will kind of differ. You know, I've got some brilliant products at home that we can consider happy accidents. And there's a sort of positive contingency with all of the things that I like in terms of food methods, whether it's making your own charcuterie, making your own dairy or cheese. I'm making my version of these things. I don't own the recipe for bacon, but I make my own bacon. You can make your own bacon following the simple rules, but there's this element of, 
okay, so I've got the rules down. Now I'm going to mess around with a few ingredients. I'm going to mess around with where I leave it. I'm going to mess around with the amount of time I leave it for. And these throw up really interesting, different, true artisan bespoke to you ingredients. It makes it really vibrant. Mm. We have so lost our way of this sort of disconnect. There's this mystery around food now, isn't it? We buy it in the supermarket and we've got no idea, even what it is, let alone how you make it. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit of effort to, to make those few simple ones kind of opens up the door then to go, oh, okay, right, I get it. And the more we can understand what's processed and what's not processed, because everything's kind of, you know, if you've cooked it, it's been processed in some way. But if mm. we can understand, mm. how, you know, what's real food and what's fake food, I suppose. Which brings me a little bit then, so, so, so you know, coming to an end, people will be pleased to hear who are listening probably. Um, but uh, where do we go? So I, we touched on this before we started, that I, the more I've looked into the food chain, the more I've become, on one side depressed and sort of aware of some of the bad stuff that's going on and some of the compromises that have been made because of, because of speed and because of price and because we spend so much less now of our disposable income on food. But you mentioned this, that, you know, at the end of the day, we're in a very privileged position. We could spend a little bit more on food if we want to. I can't work out where the sweet spot is um, between uh, the, the balance, I suppose, of the impact on the environment, on animal welfare, on nutrition and all this kind of stuff. What? How do you see the world? Is it lots of artisan, little places, river cottage are we going back in time to sort of little small holdings or are we going to get to a point where we nail how to do this on a on a bigger grander scale but without the environmental impact if you've got young kids if you Mm. look 10 20 years into the future how do you see the world around food and drink well um it's it's through an element of hope and optimism as you know i think that's what it, it requires quite if you just take where we currently are in the world in general, you know, we were talking earlier about how you could view it as spiralling into madness. Uh, and and in the food world in particular, things have gone quite badly wrong. But then, you know, you and I, eternal optimists, we decided we'd say it was a pendulum, didn't we? And yeah. things go badly wrong and you try and affect it and, and bring it back. And I look at, you know, the youth and I think, oh, my God, you know, they are mostly super proactive and doing brilliant things and not putting us to shame, but I think it's going in a good way, all right? Um, I see that through uh, a few years of pain that we will start to learn the balance between wildlife and farming and using farming and doing it in a sustainable way that produces great results but doesn't take away from the earth. I think, you know, biodiversity, sustainability, big words, I think these will become the maxims of how we judge how well people are doing. Currently, there's a labelling system on food which tells you about calories and salt and ingredients. Ultimately, I think there should be a traffic light system on clothing, on food, on anything that we buy that shows the impact it has had on the earth in order to get that product on the shelf. And when that kind of opens up, people will be able to go, blimey, as nice and as fashionable as that jacket is, I would be an idiot to buy it. And it would become less removed i think everybody would be able to tap into the knowledge of their own actions and see it makes uh, a kind of it's still the kind of act as an individual or local and it will have an impact um 
I was listening to a really cool guy over the weekend, a guy called Tony Juniper from uh, Natural England. And he talked about how if you see the world as a kind of patchwork as opposed to this big entity, then you start to make connections and those connections have a bigger impact. It's about creating small communities that are connected further afield. And I think that, you know, it will be more plant-based, our diet. I think there'll be proteins from different areas. And I know there's lots of work on uh, eating um, insects. I just think that, I hope it doesn't go too far. I think it will be at the point where it's understood whether you eat a plant-based diet or, uh, you know, a diet that has some meat in it, that you have to have both of those systems working symbiotically in order for them to produce the best. And that leaves you with the ability of making the choice of what your diet is because you've got the choice of brilliant things that don't necessarily railroad us into a food and environmental disaster. Perfect. Good answer. Uh, and something that jumps out then is when you talk about, you know, the nuances of meat and plant, I suppose, is that there's always extremes, isn't there? Somewhere in the middle, the kind of flexitarian approach, because even, the, you know, with plant-based food, what upsets me now is we always, you know, go, you know, the pendulum sometimes goes too far. And all yes. of a sudden we're, we're making these fake kind of, you know, pretend meat products. Yeah. We're making these non-meat burgers and we're making them all in a factory somewhere in the world made of weird and wonderful things. And then we're shipping them around the world and you kind of go, oh, look, we did that. That's not the solution. The solution was somewhere where you just, you know, yeah, I don't know, replace half of the meat in your beef burger with some mushrooms or some lentils or something that changes it or take it out completely, but make a burger out of whole food again that we, we spoke about earlier. But the solution isn't, yeah, just start making weird and wonderful stuff in a factory. I worry sometimes with the government that they... You know, they so end up over-regulating. They talk about putting calories on everything and, uh, and, and and well-intentioned a lot of the time. But a chef in a kitchen making proper food out of whole ingredients will use a little bit more salt or might you know, use a little bit more butter or might add some extra carrots or some extra mushrooms. And he's tweaking that dish as he's tasting it to make it, you know, the right balance. But at the same time, he can't, therefore, be constantly adjusting the pre-printed nutritional value calorific content. And you end up to the point where food is made in a factory because that's the only place where you can completely make it perfect and regulate and you think you start with the right intentions but we come up with the wrong solution all too often is there any i guess my question off that is there anything the government can do to fast track this change that we need in food do you think at the moment oh. <laughs> yeah they need to sort their shit out they need to <laughs> oh, God, start press the yeah honestly they need to start yeah they, they need to focus okay they need to focus and they need to listen and i think you know there's uh, there's a voice, there is a collective voice, uh, which uh, I, I think that I, I'm, I take great positivity uh, in knowing that th there is a whole kind of community of people who will challenge now and will not part for it. And, uh, you know, I don't condone sort of aggravated violence in any kind of campaigning way, but I love this kind of notion of, yes, we'll do our version of putting on our yellow vests. We will stand together and make sure that we're listened to. And I think that is ultimately any, any government needs to do that.
Yeah. Yoga on a bridge, hypothetically, might be a nicer approach than uh, yeah having a fight, for example. I think that's what they're doing in London today, I think. Is, uh, is that right? Yeah, let's say let's, uh, it's Extinction Rebellion, I guess, and all the stuff, of which course. I do think yeah. does have this, this overwhelming kind of... Yeah, public movement of going. Yeah, we don't, probably don't want to bring the city to a standstill, and we don't want to, you know, cause people to have a rubbish day. But fundamentally, we do want you to wake up and realise that there's a that there's an issue. Yeah, well, I mean, if, I, if I'm age eighty two or eighty five and being carted away and uh, arrested because I'm doing the right thing, exactly. then right. you know, I, I'd be happy with that, and I'd expect you to pay my bail. So one of the ways was we talk about government. So one of the ways that um, River Cottage sort of seems to uh, get its voice out there is, again, we touched on this very briefly earlier about the fact you've got the canteens, kitchens, kind of high street restaurants, I suppose. I've got to ask because I'm in hospitality. So many um, people use that. They, they use their, uh, their fame or their knowledge to roll out hundreds of those buggers. You don't have many. How many, how many restaurants? Three. Three. So why have you only got three why have you not rolled out a lot and is what's the objective of having them is it about getting your message out there or is it just because you were worried that people were hungry (laughs) um i think that um the main decision was about going to places that had vibrant foodie communities and tapping into that and being able to showcase what was really going on well there and then applying the river cottageness of the kind of good food experience uh, which celebrated local seasonal organic free range wild food uh, and then there must have been a business decision which I wasn't party to and you know that's not really my forte that said now these areas have a high footfall of people and they uh, have good high streets and wouldn't it be interesting to see if we can find a place which got River Cottage ethos and brand out there and tapped into that other world of uh, the kind of classic restaurant trade and um you know it's there's no i don't think you know it's not really my forte or my place to to say i don't think there is the notion of building those up and building an empire if you kind of look at the recent uh stories uh, of people trying to do that you'd run a million miles away from i think it's quite difficult to make a success uh of that being a restaurateur is is difficult, right? Mm. Um, but uh, it, it's currently working to that to, to that level. And if, and again, don't forget, we've got this kind of other element of being able to be present in other venues other than the high street, which is a different uh, particular section of the business, uh, without too much, uh, with a balanced kind of. Um, emphasis on whether it's on your shoulders or not you know going into partnership with somebody kind of makes that a little bit Mm. easier and uh, Winchester Bristol and Axminster are the locations where we've got those uh, kitchens and um, you know I think I think they're doing okay Mm. I think it's it's refreshing to see with the opportunity of TV and the brand and all that you do, all too often, you know, money comes knocking at the door. Big investors want to invest and uh, and 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 grow the business. And it looks like you guys from the outside are maintaining that kind of integrity and authenticity by going, well, you know what? We don't want to be huge. You know, we've, you've never over-commercialized the River Cottage brand. You've got a lot of 
books, but you don't bring out new ones every six months. You have a yeah. classic. This one's about preserves. This one's about yeah. dairy. This one's about meat. Whatever it might be, you know, uh, which is brilliant. Do you, you know, do you think that's a, a consciousness? I suppose. What's the future for River Cottage? What's the legacy? What are you trying to build here? Because it doesn't look like it's about global domination. Well, I think it's about creating a, a, a business which is about more than just profit. You know, of course, it, the business has to be profitable and it needs to be around. It needs to be a platform uh, for people to come and learn all about, you know, the good things that food and hospitality and well-being ha- has to offer. We don't always get it right either. You know, it's not a kind of the, the holy grail of doing it the right way. Um, but it's important to kind of say and do and campaign those things that you do on television and then make sure that you deliver that in the kitchen at HQ or at one of the venues. You know, you've got to be across it. And if you're not across it, that's when things go wrong. And um, I guess in terms of the early days at Rift Cottage when everybody did everything and the notion of having somebody in HR or a finance director was laughable, you know. But now there are people within industry that have had experience outside of the River Cottage organic bubble that are able to apply business acumen. And I I think that's necessary. So as long as it doesn't affect the kind of culture, it doesn't affect the outcome or the intention, you know, let's hope it doesn't turn it into this kind of corporation, although B Corp would be really cool, mm. have a different connotation altogether. Um, uh, and it still has, you know, still looks internally at how the lives or the working lives of the staff that have kind of come into River Cottage, how it affects them, uh, as long as there's a guardianship over that. I think then um, wherever it goes, would, would be a kind of interesting ride. Yeah, it'll maintain that integrity. I mentioned again earlier before we started, but I'm going to see Guy this afternoon from yeah. Riverford and he went through that dilemma. I think he was getting offered big money to roll out, you know, you know, grow bigger and grow the brand. And I, I, he had some very eloquent wording. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something about the fact that he'd rather sell his daughter to a brothel than take the money that was being offered and grow the business in the way he said. And now he's gone employee-owned, basically. So he gave 75% of the business, I think, to his employees to make sure that that custodianship, that guard of what they stand for and the integrity that they stand for uh, was sustained, which um, yeah seems like a, a, brilliant, a decent solution, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. River Cottage don't do that, but there's a kind of, you know, you buy into what you're trying to maintain. Yeah, and maybe one day, like you say, the B Corp or the employee owned. So your, your role has become multifaceted. You do all sorts of stuff. Even you don't know what your job description or job title is, but out of everything that you do on a day-to-day basis now, what's your favourite bit? What gives you the most reward? Uh, so I like I like teaching and I teach in several places as well as uh, River Cottage. That's that's something making that direct connection and, and kind of seeing people go oh, bloody hell I can do that. And you know um, my inbox is full of pictures of mouldy meat from all over the world of people who've tried to make stuff and they say is this going to kill my other half? And I respond, <laughs> but do you want it to? Because it looks great to me. Uh, it will kill them if you hit them over the back of the head with it. So there's that immediate thing with teaching. I particularly like working with uh, a couple of brands that um, 
I can apply what I learned to their business and it kind of has a, a meaning. Uh, it, there's a currency that River Cottage allows you to then uh, spend with, with other people. I like uh, working with people outside of the River Cottage bubble because um, it's challenging and, um, you know, they've gone a, a particular route and there's some great people that I can uh, work with uh, as well. And, and being part of River Cottage has afforded me that basically that I'm unmanageable. And they <laughs> kind of go, yes, away you go. Excellent. You know, you can leave the county and work with, with other brands. And uh, I find that exciting. Uh, and one of the nicest or the most interesting aspects for me is I quite often find myself hosting events, uh, at things like, taste food festivals or other festivals um and uh you know i'm i'm the person facilitating the other person on stage so you know it's very rare that i stand and do a, a cookery demo or a smoking curing demo i like to be the person holding the mic interviewing the person on stage doing that i, I kind of have found myself doing that more and more often mm. you've got a great reputation for that by the way because i remember chatting to mark hicks just before you were doing his festival a little while ago so i presume it all went well but he mentioned the fact that yeah you're particularly good at kind of uh, keeping him on order and stage and kind of yeah yeah being the host for the most yeah 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 i don't i don't know if anybody keeps him in order no he's, a maverick. he's a maverick but you know he he's is. brilliant he's brilliant but that's i yeah. love that i love that I've, that gene is missing from me mark that most people have about what? You want me to stand up in front of a load of people and yeah. just chat what's in your head? Yeah, and Yeah, but I that I love that. Yeah, no, likewise. I, I love I'm, that and I'm I love, yeah, of course you do. You do it really well. <laughs> Teasing the information out of somebody else and it's kind mm. of, you know, it's less of an ego thing, isn't it? Mm, definitely, yeah. You know, I know some stuff. I know you know loads of stuff. Let's get that out in the open so these folks... Yep. Well, as the, the the role of the restaurant restaurateur, and again, I said this to you earlier, but I well, actually no, somebody on the phone I was with earlier actually in the car, and I was chatting about you know we we have such a lovely job because all we've got to do is find these amazing producers and these people who make these wonderful ingredients, and all we do really is is represent them, and we tease out a little bit extra, and we you know we cut the beautiful tomatoes in half and drizzle them with a bit of olive oil and salt and some basil, really just don't screw up beautiful ingredients. And I think when you're interviewing, it's the same thing. It's like a DJ, isn't it? He's just the filler between the music. If you get the right guests, you meet the right people, then our our job is brilliant so if you can be on stage with somebody like mark and he can be doing his thing and doing his craft and you can help bring it to life then that's lovely so yeah thank you so much um we My have uh, I've, I've i've stolen so much of your time i'm very grateful for you sparing it if people want to follow your story personally or the river cottage story is there a particularly good channel are you prolific on any particular social media i i'm uh across twitter and uh, Instagram and uh, my handle is at lamb posts. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm Stephen Lamb and I post things across those channels. Uh, I still quite like that. I like that. Uh, yeah, 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 it's yeah, not yeah. because you put lamb through the post. I get no, it. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. It's not a meat yeah. box scheme. I like the fact that when I text, uh, who was it, James from Cabrito Goats the other day, he yeah. said he was in the car with you. And I was like, no yeah. way, the lamb man and the goat man both in the same exactly. car at the same together. Yeah, so, yeah, we should yeah. really travel together. You should, you, you should know. just all go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lamb, lamb and goat, they go well together. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, I would point people towards uh, rivercottage.net. Anybody who wants to come and experience uh, any of the great classes there uh, or uh, dining events, and uh, they have a, a busy schedule throughout the year, you can just 
tap in. And uh, I'm there for about 30% of my working life. Uh, and I also teach at uh, Leith's and Vale House and Season. These are, you know, up and down the, the country. So if you're geographically challenged to get to River Crosses, you can find me there. At you're, point out, the you're out on the road. Yeah. Great. Well, look, I, I've loved having sort of, yeah, River Cottage running aside my life. I don't know. They just feel like such a nice, familiar brand. It feels like they've been a force for good for the last two decades. Uh, they feel like they've learned, you know, at the same time as I've been learning. And it just feels comfortable. And I'm really excited. I hope that carries on for the next 20 years. And as I continue to learn, you know, River Cottage does and continues to do good stuff. But thanks for what you've done, your part, and it's been great. And, uh, yeah, we'll touch base as the story evolves i hope yeah great let's meet again in 20 years time perfect let's do an anniversary podcast yeah amazing well yeah. I, I haven't got much hair left with a bit of like yours will at least be gray even if you have so much of it so that i won't feel so jealous but uh, <laughs> see you in 20 years yeah see ya thanks Stephen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday